You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Sasha Damianovsky. Is that right? That's right. Very good. Damianovsky, yes. I tried my very best. I did practice a bit before we came on air. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> right then. And you're on the show to talk about what film? Um, well, probably... Uh, oh, sorry, are we talking about the classics now or about no, my work? About your work. About your work. Right, sorry. Um, well, probably the most interesting is the one I'm trying to put together at the moment, which is called Project Snowflake. Okay. It is a um, sci-fi romance. Okay. Um, and from the, for that alone is a little bit unusual. Um, and by sci-fi romance, I do mean a real, real sci-fi. Uh, mm-hmm. Technically, for example, films like Sliding Doors or About Time are sci-fi. Yeah. Um, but so it's not like it's never been done before. Mm. However, I don't think it's been done the way we are doing it. Uh, Project Snowflake. Uh, Project Snowflake takes place in space, mm-hmm. um, circa 2100, in the space city of New London. And a couple of scientists have designed a way of recording human dreams. And they're very excited, but the company is frightened uh, because what happens if people record nightmares or embarrassing dreams and then they get leaked uh, online, etc., etc. It's a quagmire of uh, potential lawsuits and so on and so on. So the company is forcing the scientists to turn their little fun gadget into a dream manipulator, which makes everybody dream happy dreams, something safe something inoffensive. So my scientists are now in a dilemma. Uh, do they believe in thought control and uh, or do they believe in the original project, etc., etc.? And during that process, they are falling in love, which is kind of really bad timing, considering the pressure they are under. So it's good fun. It's really good fun, but it's also very topical um, and relevant to the world we live in. Well, yeah, I was just, I was just thinking it's very relevant just in terms of... Um the recent news about uh, Jennifer Lawrence's photographs getting hacked on. Exactly. And also generally in um, the whole uh, spying on people and what information is safe and what isn't. And um, also on everything, every bit of um, 
um, social control uh, that is imposed on us is always done for our own good. Mm. Everything is always done for our own safety. Uh, every stupid war that we go into is allegedly to protect us from this grave danger that is yeah. imminent and is definitely going to befall us and so on. And uh, and on smaller in on on smaller scale, uh, who could possibly argue against CCTV when it when it is meant to give us extra safety and so on? So the society is turning into this uh, world of paranoia and fear, um, and all for our own good, apparently. Well, no, no, no. The uh, the, the use of the worst case scenario to scare us into everything exactly is, is a very powerful tool. Uh, exactly. Should, so from that, point, from that point of view, the film is quite meaningful, but I still uh, maintain it is really good fun. I mean, there are quite a few laughs. It is very much a love story. It is not in any way preachy, um, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm simply placing a love story uh, in the world of in the world that we can relate to that sounds relevant. So are you, you the writer-director on this film? That's right, yes. Yeah, um, okay. Funnily enough, I, I did it as a play originally. Okay. In 2011, I wrote it as a play. Um, it was um, put on in uh, Brooklyn, a fabulous little theatre in, uh, in South London, uh, the Jack Studio Theatre. And uh, we did really well. It was beautiful to see how well people were responding to it. And mm. even the critics liked it. We had four stars in Time Out, in Exeunt Magazine, in South London Press. Um, and as I said, people really, really responded warmly to it. I went every night to watch people watch the play. And during that time, as you can imagine, this is a fringe little play. Um, it only cost us three grand, I think, to put it up. Yeah. Um, but it was already the same story. So I kind of knew even then, much as I was really enjoying doing it as a play, I kind of knew this will make a great film and there is so much scope here. In those days, it didn't take place in space, um, but it does now. <laughs> well, what, what, what stage in the filmmaking process are you at the moment? Uh, we in a very exciting stage. Uh, always is, and nerve-wracking as well, I guess. Uh, we have got a sales agent on board. Arclight are going to do the, um, um, the international sales, um, and they are really excited. They are really behind the project, so that's very, very exciting. Um, that obviously gives reassurance to our potential financiers. We have uh, potential financiers earmarked, as it were, or have started some provisional conversations, which are very encouraging, and we are now now in the process of trying to actually lock the finance in, if you like. Okay, cool. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. Yes, we'll definitely need some luck. We are working hard, but luck really does help. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's go back to the origins of this then. What 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 was it that compelled you to write this story then? What was it, what was it you were drawing on? Um, well, uh, to be honest, very originally, um, it started off with a short film of mine. I did a short film called Green Pages, okay. and it started almost as a joke. Um, I was getting frustrated because I loved writing <laughs> original screenplays, and I kept being told, oh, you should do an adaptation, you should do an adaptation. It's so much easier when you do an adaptation. So as I, um, I got frustrated, and I decided to make an adaptation of the phone book. And I quite literally did. Um, Green Pages is a short film uh, that is an adaptation of the phone book. And uh, for 17 minutes, it's a single take film, by the way. Yeah. So it's a single take 17 minutes uh, film in which two people are entering data 
into a computer and the entire dialogue is just names and addresses, website addresses and so on. But during that, they fall in love. And uh, the film is really focused on these two falling in love. But there is a CCTV camera hanging above their head and they are not allowed to talk. They are not allowed to do anything personal. They must just stick to entering data. And the film did really well. People loved it. People laughed and loved the love story and so on. But I also got really intrigued by these two characters I've created. So what happened then, kind of, what happened next? And Project Snowflake was really born out of that. Uh, I then continued on the story of the two main characters. And then from that, from that, story, that original sort of kernel of a story, how did Project Snowflake, as the story you've got now, how did that emerge out of those... The idea was to um, to stay with the love story. Uh, I guess I'm a romantic um, first and foremost, okay. <laughs> um, and um, and um, and also any story, no matter what you're trying to say, is much more relevant. Well, no matter what, obviously it's a it's a big statement, but uh, just about any story is obviously much more interesting uh, if we can relate to it on a hum- on a direct level, on you know, on a human level, on of how does it affect you, me, and people we know, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was really intrigued by their relationship. Who would they be? Where would they be coming from? And so on. But uh, I played with lots of different ideas and lots of different possibilities. And then what happened at the end of the film? Uh, at the end of the short film, they kiss. Um, and then what happened, and there are, does the boss get involved, or do they get fired, and so on and so on. I started playing with different ideas. And the more I was playing with, um, the more I was intrigued. And I know it's a kind of a cliche, uh, oh, it was all a dream, etc., etc. But actually, exactly because of that, I, was, uh, I felt challenged and I felt tempted to... Um, to do something with that of, uh, okay, so can I take an old cliche and do something different with it? Just like I did with uh, the adapting a book. I took a phone book to adapt rather than a classic and so on. So uh, then once I had that idea that this was perhaps a dream, okay, well, obviously that alone isn't enough. And then it, I took it from there. Okay, so if that was a dream, who are these people in, in date, during the daytime, during, you know, in real life, etc., etc. And that, and it kind of took off from there. And how did it end up being a stage play before it was a screenplay? What was, what was your thinking there? Um, at this point, uh, when I first came up with the idea, I hadn't done a feature film yet, okay. and it was becoming clear digital revolution was really uh, in properly, and it became the norm that really, if you want to be given a feature film to do, you will have to have done a feature film already, which is the, the, first, the infamous Catch-22. Of course, yes. so many filmmakers find this. Um, so... Basically, I knew that whatever I do, it will have to be really, really cheap, a contained, small, low-budget story. Mm-hmm. All the other ideas I had were just too expensive for a first feature. Mm-hmm. And um, um, in trying to create something that is really, really micro-budget, that is so contained, and obviously, ultimately, still true to the story I'm trying to tell, yeah. I ended up with a text which, when I shared with a, a friend of mine who is a theatre producer... Uh, just showed it to him to see, you know, to get his opinion, what do you think of this, etc. Um, Simon said, Simon James Collier, uh, Simon said, you know what, this could make a great play. 
Now, I love theatre, and uh, I had done only one play before, um, because, again, it's so difficult to to develop two careers, or uh, two directing careers simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, when he said, let's do this as a play, I got really excited. I said, brilliant, yes, let's, let's. And I know, obviously, he's a theater, successful theatre uh, producer, and I knew he could do it. And really, he kind of tipped it over into being a play rather than a script, and that's what we did. We put it on as a play. But as I said, even as I was doing it, much as I was really having a whale of a time, uh, even then I kind of knew this really ought to be a film. And what was what was your job there, sort of adapting a stage play to a screenplay? How, how did you go about that? That was tough. That was the hardest, for me personally, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. Really? Adapting the play into a script. Um, normally, uh, as you know this yourself, uh, you write a script, and even as you're writing the first draft, you already know, obviously you know it's not perfect, and you're already making mental notes, this needs to be better, this needs to be elaborated, this needs to be clarified, this needs to be whatever. Yeah. So your uh, second draft is better, but you already know what to improve, and or you're trying to find out what to get better, and so on. But here, I had a play which had gone through that process, and I got to... Uh, a text which was decent. It was quite good, actually. Um, may not be the best play I've ever written, but certainly was a solid piece of work. So to then tear it to pieces and turn it into a script, I had to treat it as a first draft. I had to treat it almost as if, well, not almost, I had to treat it as nothing is sacred, everything can be sacrificed, and so, and certainly can't be just turned into a screenplay format. This has to be proper uh, piece of work. So it took me good two drafts just to forget the play in a way, uh, just to move away from the play, forget the voices of the of the fabulous actors that we that we had in the play, uh, forget the sets in, and so on. And it's only from the third, fourth draft that it started really feeling um, like a film, like a film script, and started really coming to its own, if you see what I mean. I mean, I think the important thing to point out here is, is that obviously a state, for those people that aren't familiar with the formats, a stage play is a story told through what people say, because obviously you're looking at a stage. So Pretty a much, yeah. Whereas a, a screenplay is visual storytelling, so it's less about what people say and more about what you see. Pretty much. I mean, obviously, marvellous exceptions in, in both camps, but uh, as, a, as a whole, exactly right. And... Uh, Cutting the scenes down and cutting long speeches dramatically yeah. was certainly one of the first things I did. And I was very aware of this and I was doing it, but that alone still somehow wasn't enough. Now, it's also part of the problem is also that, not problem, part of the challenge was that this is a relatively talky uh, material. Uh, mm -hmm. It is, um, for example, if you take any romantic comedy, essentially, uh, no matter how much they're chasing around, really is about observing two people or three or four falling in love and falling out of love and falling back in love. So that in itself lends itself to dialogue, yeah. uh, which is why then you are extra cautious. You have to be extra careful and not to just slip back into uh, theater mode, as it were. <laughs> it was so, good fun. It was a good, it was a great, excuse me, sorry. Um, 
It was good fun. It was bloody hard work, but I'm so glad I did it. And uh, and obviously, I am very proud of the script uh, now, and we are getting really good reactions. Uh, in fact, recently, it was shortlisted as a top 100 finalists in the Emerging screen, uh, Screenwriters uh, Screenplay Competition in L.A., um, which was great. Obviously, it was t- taken out of 1,100 entries. Oh. So... Uh, and generally, I know when people read it and script editors, as well as people we are hoping to collaborate with, people respond to it very well. So I know the the all the hard work was worth it, um, and it's certainly rewarding. But yeah, it was hard work. <laughs> how did, um, in story terms, how did the story um, evolve out of a stage play to a screenplay? Was was the was there any significant additions, any significant omissions? The most, absolutely. The most significant uh, additions were uh, changing the space. Um, it does take place, as I said, in, in a space city uh, in Earth's orbit, yeah. where before it was only taking place in this institute where the, the actual device, the HDR, the Happy Dreams recorder, mm. has been invented. So change, um, change uh, and, and therefore creating a world um because obviously it's not just cosmetic uh, plonk it into a bigger city and it will be fine uh, you are creating a world so you have to be consistent how does this world work uh, and uh, think about it and why and, and so on and so on um, also uh, addition of new characters uh, and creating new uh, important characters of course yeah. potentially destabilizes the story so you really have to be careful how it's interwoven because I, I knew uh, that I had to I really wanted to stay true to the core story yeah. of Martha and Jeremy and uh, their boss John John Barr so that was that was very interesting uh, adding some new characters and um, and making sure that their function is not superfluous it doesn't feel just add-on but it's actually um, <laughs> part of uh, uh, the story of the whole and so on um, um, so a lot of actually there are about I think about good 60-70% of the scenes in the script are technically completely new. Fantastic. Um, They're new material. They're still true to the old story. Um, It's. I'm glad to say when we did the rehearsed uh, reading, I had a couple of actors from the original play um, come and and join the the cast that was reading the script, uh, partly because I love them, but partly because I wanted to make sure that for people who know the original play, that I haven't lost, as it were, the magic or whatever it is that made that play work so well for people and, and so on. And I've Intuitively, I felt that I hadn't, but still, it was good to hear it from the outside as well, from somebody who knows the play. And I'm glad to say, yeah, everybody agrees that it is it is improved, but I haven't lost anything important or relevant. That said, I have lost some great moments, and that hurts, but every writer knows that uh, even when you're just rewriting from one rewrite to another of a normal script, you will lose some scenes which you think are brilliant and amazing and fabulous and whatever. You will still have to cut them because they don't fit anymore. If they don't fit, they don't fit, do they? Exactly. So let's let's just, just, just go to the sort of root of how you operate. What Your writing habit, yep. you, in terms of how you might develop a script, are you... Yep. Are you a dive straight in man? Are you a no, no, no. Um, I love the cards. Actually, I just discovered I'm developing something new at the moment, and I just discovered 
a pattern that I wasn't aware of before. Yeah. The past few years, um, I before I start a new script, I take a new uh, script writing book to read. Okay. As you know, there are stacks of them, and yeah. uh, I don't know if you would agree with me. Really, essentially, they're all saying one and the same thing. Exactly. They're just wording things differently. They call, you know, is it a plot point or a turning point? And da, da, da. but <laughs> essentially, essentially, the rules of script writing really are more or less um, uh, those, and they are kind of repeated, maybe slightly differently explained by different writers. Um, so you are kind of learning really new quotes uh, by new writers, but you're not really relearning the, relearning the trade. Mm. However, by reading a fresh book, I find myself uh, provoked into thinking about my story because inevitably you end up thinking, oh, am I doing that? Oh, uh, have I got that sorted? Oh, da, 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 da. And it helps me... Uh, it helps me to stimulate uh, my mind, I guess, uh, and and that questioning um, system in your head where, okay, have, am I doing this? Is this right? Is this really strong enough, et cetera, et cetera. So that I like. And, um, but essentially, after I've finished the book, um, the process is more or less the same. I will start with uh, doodling on paper, um, often draw a basic timeline on which I can put my beginning and my end, if I know the end, quite often I do. Yeah. Uh, and then from there I go into cards and uh, post-it post notes, I mean, uh, or card system, whoever, uh, whichever use uh, people use. And uh, in my case, it post-it notes on the wall. Yeah. And then during that time, I will be jotting lots of notes, like biographies and a little bit more about the world or if it's necessary and details and so on, sort of kind of like stories and information that it helps you, although it might not end up in the script. And what, what do you find the benefit is for sort of, sort of unpicking the story that way well you know how fun how much fun it is to put a lego together mm. or ikea furniture together well <laughs> suddenly for me I, I love putting ikea furniture together um it's just i don't know i just love it uh see the cards uh oh hang on a minute this can go there or no no this one can't go straight after this one i'm missing something here okay i'll leave a blank here mm. and then once you have a blank uh, of course you want to fill it in so you're thinking what can i put in there and so on so somehow i find and also i find i can visualize visualize the whole film better maybe also because i'm a director uh, yeah. but probably not probably simply i don't know how my mind works visually or whatever um but I, that way I can almost see the scene. If I write a note that says, I don't know, a strange incident, whatever, yeah. then I, I have to think, oh, what kind of a strange incident? Is it supernatural? Is it no? Is it just odd? Is it da 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 da, da? Um, Or, I don't know, Faye finds Ren, uh, their characters in, in my new script, and, uh, okay, so how does she find him, et cetera, et cetera. So it sort of it's, helps me having, uh, have a dialogue with myself. No, I could totally agree with you. It's that I mean, because as as we probably both know, if you if it's written in a script, as as it's written up in script form, mm -hmm. it tends to just get very it get lots of details get lost yeah. in terms of how how the story plays out. Whereas looking at a board of index cards or post it notes, you begin to see you you can look at it at a glance, can't you? Exactly, you see the whole film. 
and, it, and I think I think it. I don't know about you, but does it does it help into where you're at those notes where you haven't got the answer? It helps you percolate those ideas so that you every time you return to your office or wherever you work, you're reminded of this. <laughs> exactly, and also what helps me is uh, once I have a whole bunch of notes, then I write them down um, as um, almost as a, you know a long list of of one-line uh, notes and the scene about this and scene about that, that. But in trying to do that, you know how when you are when you look at the text you are uh, you have written, you intuitively start correcting it, improving it, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so by writing down the notes, the uh, re writing down the post-it notes, sorry, uh, I end up embellishing them or I end up improving them, as it were. And therefore, quite often, I end up answering what I didn't know when it was still a post-it note, a note, sorry. So in, in the act of writing the post-it note down, I seem to come up with a better way of putting it, if you see what I mean, which essentially means finding a solution for a scene or or thinking of a new scene or whatever. It's like it's like having a QA and a with yourself, isn't it? Yeah, 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 very much, very much. So then once I've written that list, uh, as I said, on a piece of paper, I really, it's not a piece of paper, it's on the computer, but uh, once I have written that list in a document, then I go back and write those onto a new set of post-it notes. So it goes back and forth. Now you now you've done a, you did a film called Dance with Me back in what 2010. That's right. Yes. So what... this was my first feature. Basically, what happened was when Simon said, "Let's do Project Snowflake," but I don't have a theatre uh, available and I can't do it because of my schedule this next year. Um, but I really want to do this. I said, "Oh, okay." Uh, great. Well, I want to do it too. And then I had to go back and think of a new micro-budget story. Mm. So I did. Dance with me became that micro, micro, micro-budget. So from that from that experience, though, what less what lessons learned do you bring forward into Project Snowflake? Um, a lot, obviously. Uh, I going back. Uh, there are certain things I compromised on, thinking, well, we just don't have the money, so that uh, then I realized actually. I should have been a little bit more stubborn. There could have been a way of working it out. Mm -hmm. um, the importance of marketing, certainly I learned a lot about marketing distribution. We did manage to get the film out. It did come out in cinema. It came out in two cinemas in the UK and one cinema uh, in Macedonia, former okay. Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it did come out on DVD and iTunes, etc. But that was a real, real struggle. And I realized, I learned so much more about uh, marketing and distribution, obviously, during that process. And I would never do it like that again. Um, what, 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 can, you, can, you, can you tell us what the mistakes were you made that you, you obviously won't be repeating? Uh, certainly you should have. Well, uh, overall, uh, it's a, um, there is a question of was this the right choice for a first feature because okay. it's, a, it's a small, intense psychological drama right. um, and it would have been easier to promote if it was my second or third film. Mm. The first film really, it appears, the first film needs to be, I hate, I hate saying it, but I think it really does, the, your first feature needs to be somehow catchy, somehow unusual, somehow different. And Dance With Me isn't different. It's solid. I, I, I'm proud of it, not for being perfect, because it sure isn't perfect. Mm -hmm. But it's an honest piece of work, and, you know, I stand by it. But uh, it is just a normal, if you like, drama. Yeah. Uh, the originality uh, in it are it just, you know, the normal originality you will get in a decent piece of work. It's yeah. not reinventing the wheel in any way. Um, what was... Um, 
had I done more thinking about distribution and marketing at that stage when I was writing it, mm. I would have realized this. Yep. And I could have potentially written something that would have been more exciting and therefore it could have done me much more favors as a first feature. Is that? Do you mean that it, it, you, you would err on the side of having a film that was sort of a clear genre film in some sense? A um, romance or a horror or a sci-fi? Not necessarily clear genre per se, yeah. but certainly... I would listen to how people are responding to the story. You know how when you pitch a story and you can get you get a, a, like something new that you're working on. If you tell a friend uh, yeah. what you're working on, you can you can kind of tell in their reaction uh, are you on the right track or not. Yeah. And obviously you don't take a judgment just on one conversation like this. But if you have five conversations like this, you are starting to get <laughs> a, a better idea. Yeah. Um, in that sense. Uh, maybe I would have parked Dance With Me and I would have come up with something else. Okay. Or or I would have developed Dance With Me into something else. Like, for example, um, the main character in the film is a choreographer. Okay. And maybe I would have pushed the boat and may, actually made a dance film, which at the time I was uh, staring, staying uh, away, keeping away from for various reasons. Maybe I would have gone, let's say, okay, so did, let's make it a tango film. Because there are beautiful tango sequences in the film, yeah. uh, I could have potentially made a tango film and make it a niche, fair enough. But if you're making a micro-budget, a uh, niche film is not a bad thing. But then I would have had something that really stands out. I would have been the guy that made that tango film, etc., etc. Uh, I could have I could have played it differently, basically, by being aware of marketing distribution. Now... This is not to say that I would have compromised my artistic vision. I, 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 you know, I still haven't and I still won't do a horror zombie film just because everybody's making horror zombie films, therefore I must do that because mm. that is commercial. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Mm. But if you're going to walk into a bar and you want to tell a joke and you expect people to listen, it has to be a good joke. Mm. And this is... Uh, and I kind of did dance with me without checking whether it's a good joke. <laughs> no, so it, makes sense. Sense. it makes perfect sense. I mean, and, any, and, and anyone that's been to, you know, has walked around the marketplace at Cannes mm-hmm. would, would know that if, like, say, like, like you say, if, if something's marketed as a tango movie, then a flamenco movie, sorry, it's, uh, it would become, it would be obvious to people who are looking for that film. It's not for everybody, but those people looking will find exactly. it easy. Exactly. I mean, there is a website in Germany that specializes in tango and the tango products of all sorts, shoes, records, uh, and so uh, CDs and so on. Mm. And they are also selling my film. Okay. And bless them, they have sold a few copies by now. Mm. Uh, it, they, would have nev- they were never going to sell thousands and thousands, but, mm. you know, uh, twice now they have said, uh, can you send us some more copies? Um, so, uh, clearly... You know, and again, you wouldn't be able. I wouldn't be able to do something like that on Project Snowflake because Project Snowflake is a six million pounds picture at the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether it will go down or up, but certainly is more than you know uh, ten thousand. Dance with me was a ten thousand pounds movie. Okay. So um, on that level of budget, you can afford to go more niche, and but then you would. Uh, focus on niche marketing and niche distribution, um, and you would do it. You would do that properly. At the time, we didn't do that, and that is the other thing I learned from the experience of Dance with Me. Uh, I've learned much more about 
how does distribution actually operate? What do how do sales agents think and work and uh, sales agents sorry think and work and what what are they looking for and um, how do you do a film with and how do you film uh, do a film without a sales agent attached etc. Mm. All of those lessons have really come in handy now with Project Snowflake, where we Project Snowflake is still only a screenplay, but we have got a sales agent attached, mm. even though we don't even have a cast yet. Okay. And does that, I mean, does that mean then that you will develop the cast in dialogue with that sales agent? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And they are being wonderful. Uh, it, they, we are having genuinely creative conversations, uh, not just, oh, well, we just need a big name, big name, big name, give us a big name. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. of course, they want a bigger name, but um, people who are right for the roles and so on. So um, that is, um, you know, it is a collaboration in that sense. And uh, we are, my team and I are really obviously appreciative of it, as you can imagine. Mm. So what is, I mean, you were saying there you've kind of learned what it is to work with or without distribution. So what is it What is it you now know that distribution offers you as a filmmaker? Um, as a, as a first-time producer, um, you simply don't have the same, unless obviously you do come from distribution background, but generally speaking, you simply don't have the expertise that distributors and sales agents do. Okay. And that is an invaluable expertise. It's a minefield. It's completely, it is uh, just as much of a job to, uh, to distribute to a film, to take a film out there as it is to actually make it. And we all know that it is a really tough job to make a film in the first place. Sure. Uh, there are so many films out there. Uh, there are so many elements um, in the whole distribution process that uh, you really, really need uh, somebody with uh, with that knowledge, with that experience. Um, it's not that you can't do it without. Again, we did get Dance With Me out. But uh, was it commercially successful? Of course not. Mm. Uh, uh, was it? Did it get the same exposure as, let's say, um, I don't know, Rodriguez's um, film, El Mariachi? Of course not. Mm. Now... There are different reasons for it, of course. I have no guns in Dance With Me, etc., etc. But there is also a question of who is distributing it. And Dance With Me was distributed by me and my team. And El Mariachi was distributed by one of the studios in LA. So yeah. there's just no comparison. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes. And you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. So right now, then you're you're uh, like you said at the start, you've got your sales agent on board, uh, yep. right, and you've got the potentially potential finances earmarked. Yeah. So it's, um, I guess, onwards and upwards for you, hopefully, to, Indeed, uh, yes. to raise to raise the money to make this movie, and uh, and obviously we're at Britflix, you know, as you as you move forward with it, we'd gladly have you back on to tell us more about the story of this. Well, thank you. I will gladly share. Yeah. Cool. Now, before you go, we got one question we always ask everybody. Please, yeah. Um, and because we're Britflix, we want to, we want to get people to recommend British films. So, is there any films that you feel, you know, maybe have gone a bit underrated now and, and deserve a bit more kudos, and you want to draw attention to? Um, underrated. Uh, well, Anna Karenina, very recently. Okay. Um, I find myself in conversations defending that film and fighting for that film, almost as if I worked on it. Um, I I don't understand why um, 
people didn't respond to that film. Critics didn't either. I think it is amazing. I thought uh, all the performances were wonderful, including Kira Knightley, um, who I know um, often uh, causes uh, debates, if you like, is she or isn't she? I think she's a fantastic actress. Um, and certainly in this, she's brilliant. She's absolutely brilliant in this. Um, but also... But the concept of it was brilliant. Uh, Joe Wright did a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant job in... I mean, Anna Karenina is a classic. It has been done to death. Uh, there are so many versions in existence. And uh, to find to find uh, a way of making it exciting and fresh and not feel like, uh, yes, here we go again. Mm. Or, uh, interestingly, again, um, uh, the script... Uh, has even managed, and Joe Wright's directing, uh, has found um, humor in it. Okay. Now, those who know the novel uh, would not easily uh, think that you, you can find humor in Anna Karenina. I mean, it is superbly creative. It is such an interesting piece of work. And not to mention that the costume and, and um, uh, the set design and the lighting are just fabulous. The sequences in it, um, which are so beautifully choreographed as well, it's just magical. It is just pure, pure cinema. I came out of the cinema. I've seen it twice now in cinema, and then since bought it on Blu-ray, etc. Yeah. I remember coming out of the cinema the first time I saw it, and I was virtually hovering above ground rather than uh, rather than walking. Um, I was really excited by it. I think it's fabulous. It is so visual. It is so cinematic, and um, and yet. Even though, for example, people have often criticized uh, Baz Luhrmann's uh, Moulin Rouge and often his work in general uh, as the style getting in the way of uh, of the story and so on. Yeah. And even if, uh, obviously, Baz Luhrmann is a whole different conversation, but even if you could say that about some of his work, which, you know, I know where, it's come, uh, where people come uh, from with that, this is uh, certainly not the case with Anna Karenina. I think um, the poignancy is not lost. I think the emotions of those uh, uh, of those performances, of the emotions of those characters, are just stunning. Jude Law is um, is just unbearable in it, in the most beautiful sense, in the most powerful sense. It's just brilliant, really, really good. I love that film. Um, and another, I, I just um, it's kind of topical, if I may. Um, I also am surprised that it isn't talked of more, although it is a film that has been appreciated over the years, of course it has, uh, is Over the Lovely War. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I, won't, I won't just repeat all the praises. <coughs> that film has been praised. That film is not underrated. But uh, uh, for uh, one particular reason, compare Over the Lovely War to Chicago, the musical. They're both musicals. Right. Um, Chicago started off way, way back, started off as a play, which was social critique of, uh, of the times and so on and so on. Mm. Chicago, the musical, has entirely lost that. It almost glamorizes um, 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 homicide and, uh, and shooting your partner if you don't like them and getting away with it and becoming a celebrity and so on. Mm -hmm. Where the original play was actually a hard-hitting uh, social critique. Over the Lovely War is a musical with catchy tunes and numbers, but it never loses its poignancy. I think every politician should be made to watch it on Monday morning uh, before work, uh, because again and again and again we are drawn into stupid wars 
for no good reason at all. Um, and over the lovely war really accentuates that, really, really illustrates that so poignantly, so beautifully. Uh, and because of that, I think, even though, as I said, it has been appreciated as a film, it's not like Anna Karenina, which is really genuinely underrated. Yeah, 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 no, <laughs> I no. think it deserves to be spoken of much more often, the way we talk about red shoes all the time, which is okay. obviously a classic and so on. Well, look, thank you very much for your time, Sasha, coming on the podcast. I think You're most welcome. Really, I loved it. Thank I you. It's been a really good conversation about, you know, the, 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 those, those early stages of getting a movie made. I think you've given a great insight into into the world of the filmmakers. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. I um, really, you know, um, I'm happy to come back again if you if you find it useful. Yeah, no, no, please keep us posted on how you develop. And, you know, you, we, I mean, I'm, I'm always looking to sort of follow the story of a film getting made. So you, you've just started the process here. So please keep us posted and we'll, uh, we'll tell the next chapter for you. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.